Welcome tonight. Just all turn to 125. We're going to sing all the verses. 126 and that one and it's away in the manger it just had a little more words in there than the other one did amen i'm um, sure appreciate these men uh filling in and uh leading the music tonight and uh this morning looking forward to tonight brother tim quinlan our youth director is going to be preaching and so let's go to the lord in prayer enjoyed this morning we had a host of visitors and our kids did a great job and sure appreciate our junior church workers and looking forward to tonight and so let's pray tonight and ask the Lord's blessing on our services. I'm going to ask Brother John Ellis if you would pray for us, brother. night did just have a few announcements wanted to mention of course i mentioned this this morning but don't forget about uh this coming sunday this uh, next sunday be, uh, christmas eve uh, uh sunday will be on christmas eve and so we are having special services we're only having an 11 a.m morning service and then a 5 p.m uh evening uh service and again we do want to make time for families and things like that but we do want to honor the lord amen and so be in your place uh for that we won't have any buses no men's prayer or sunday school or bible study but again we will have an 11 a.m service and a 5 p.m service so be in your place and uh looking forward to worshiping our savior amen and celebrating the birth of our savior uh also the following sunday uh new year's eve 
Uh, so Sunday falls on New Year's Eve, uh, and so uh, we'll have our regular services throughout the day. And then in the evening, after the evening service, we will have a linger longer. And so I want to invite you to stay for that, bring some finger foods, have some fellowship and things uh, like that. And then, of course, as we get into January, did have some things I wanted uh, to mention. Uh, January the 2nd, uh, which is on a Tuesday, our kids will be going back uh, to school if you have kids in Faith Baptist School. And then on January the 5th, which is Friday, is our first series of volleyball and basketball games versus Heritage Baptist School out of Lawrence, Kansas. And these will actually be here. So there'll be home games, and that'll be starting at 6 o'clock in the evening. And again, that's January 5th on a Friday night. Uh, January 15th, if you have kids in Faith Baptist School, there's no school. And then January the 19th, there'll be another series of uh, volleyball and basketball games. And so this, too, is on a Friday and this will be away uh, versus Heritage Baptist School there in Lawrence, and that too will be at 6 p.m. Also, something else that's coming up uh, in February, uh, Miss Sophie Meerhoff is going to be marrying Isaac uh, Needfelt, and so uh, they are having a wedding shower on Saturday, January the 6th, uh, in the fellowship hall here at the church, and that's at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So ladies, certainly be aware of that, and they are registered at uh, Amazon, and so I uh, did just want to mention uh, those things. Okay, Brother Gary, come on over here. I'll let you stay seated for this. As long as you can reach your wallets for the offering. <laughs> so I'll turn to 146, my favorite Christmas hymn, 146. Isaac can play for the offering tonight, please.
So I'll say it one more time. Turn to 348. 348. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You Madison Stewart is going to have our special. Majesty 
Every eye at last shall see He is the great I am. When He comes again, the host of heaven with Him, He'll bring to earth a kingdom without end. When He by the ones he loved when he came he drank freely from death's bitter cup betrayed and broken Jesus hung in agony the truth of who he really was the world could not see but when he comes again on a cloud of majesty every eye at last shall see he is the great I am when he comes again the whole with him he'll bring to earth a kingdom without end when he comes again the hope of all the ages the everlasting Lord that baby boy from Bethlehem shall Every eye at last shall see He is the great I am When He comes again The host of heaven with Him He'll bring to earth a kingdom without end When He comes again telling you his first coming sure reminds us about his second coming doesn't it what a blessing sure hope you're ready for that i know i am looking forward uh looking forward to that well tonight brother tim quinlan is going to be our, our preacher and sure appreciate him and miss anna their family and doing a good job over there in the youth uh, department so i've been praying for him i know he's been struggling with uh, his voice and and cold and things like that but appreciate him and his faithfulness amen and so brother tim you come and preach tonight brother well, I'm certainly thankful for every opportunity I get to preach. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, there's just something different about doing it every week. 
uh, in the teen department, you know, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And uh, I don't know, I, I never really thought about it. Of course, you know, I'm sure pastor has, uh, you know, obviously been doing this for a long time. And most uh, men who are preaching on a, on a weekly basis like that kind of get used to it. And there's a, a, an amount of that, but at the same time, uh, just these last several months now, um, I have done so much more uh, in-depth Bible study than probably ever before. And it's, you know, it's just something different than just normal Bible reading. And sometimes there's things you come across and maybe the Lord impresses on your heart and you study it out a little bit or something like that. But but when you're in, in multiple books and uh, at any given time there's several you know, commentaries and things like that sitting on my desk, it's amazing how you can see so many connections in just uh, the myriad uh, parts of the Bible in, in various letters. And, and there will be times where we, we're going through the Gospel of John and as I'm getting a lesson ready, it's like, hey, we just talked about this same thing in back in Genesis chapter 10 or whatever. Uh, and it's just, uh, it has been even more eye-opening to me, awe-inspiring, if you will, to me to see uh, just how intricately put together the Word of God is and how we can see these men who wrote spanning centuries that God still worked, and God used them individually. He used their personalities and their individual writing styles and all yet all of that, and yet it is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us. And of course, we even saw that earlier in First Peter, how that he would say uh, there in chapter 1, I believe it's verses 11 and 12, how that the, uh, the holy men of God, uh, those, the prophets... Rather, it talks about holy men of God in the second Peter, but the prophets, uh, as they were prophesying and as they were writing uh, their letters to the children of Israel, God's purpose was way deeper than the prophets even understood. And of course, even the angels, though they are viewing this world from God's perspective, they don't fully understand redemption and God's eternal acts there. And so I... I am so thankful for the Word of God and how, uh, how the Holy Spirit works in it. Lord willing, we're going to finish up chapter 5 tonight. Um, if you'll remember, it's been a while because it was back in uh, uh, July, I believe it was, early part of July that we were in 1 Peter. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, we dealt with the first four verses of chapter 5. So, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, if you remember, okay, these first four verses of chapter 5 have to deal with the elders. It says in chapter, or in verse 1 there, the elders which are among you I exhort, who, also, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So, uh, this particular several verses are addressed specifically to the elders. And I think we could even narrow that down to say that it's talking to, he is speaking to the elders of the churches that are in the office of the elder, the bishop, the pastor, the elder, whatever term you want to use there, is that those who are called of God to lead and feed the church 
better take that responsibility seriously. Uh, They're not lords over the flock. I love how our pastor says he wants to be a helper of our joy. Uh, Then anyone who is in that position should not be there, should not take the oversight, as Peter says, uh, out of constraint or out of necessity, but rather willingly. Certainly not for filthy lucre, not for pride, not for money or any of that kind of stuff, but because God has called them to it. It is not a light thing for a man to under-shepherd God's flock. But if you remember, we took it a little step further. It's, so it's not just those who have the specific office to lead and feed, but really all those who are spiritual elders should take their spiritual position seriously. While we wouldn't expect someone who is recently saved to quote-unquote be a pillar of the church, to lead in prayer and teach a Sunday school class and all of those kinds of things, we should be able to expect the spiritually mature to do those kinds of things. If you've been saved for 30 years and couldn't possibly teach a Sunday school class if needed, there's probably something wrong. If you've been in church your entire life and couldn't or wouldn't pray corporately, there's something wrong. Those who are mature in the faith should be an example of spiritual maturity to the rest of the church. On the flip side of that coin then, the younger have a responsibility to the elders. Now the title of the last message was Responsibility Grows with Age, and that would have to do with our spiritual maturity. Tonight, You might read even uh, starting in chapter 5 there where it says, Likewise, ye younger, we'll read in just a minute here, but uh, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. You might read that and go, all right, now we're going to talk about respecting your elders. And there's an amount of that. But I think really taken as a whole, the rest of this passage, we we could say it like this. God's working in your life is directly related to your humility. That would be to your submission to those in authority over you. So here's our title, God Strengthens the Humble. So if you would please stand, we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start there in verse 5, and we're going to read on through the end of the chapter, and Lord willing, uh, we'll get through all of it. So verse 5, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Of course, here we come to one of the most famous verses from 1 Peter, verse 8. It says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now remember, this entire passage, or this entire book, this entire letter, has has the backdrop of persecution and suffering, and he's reminding them that they're not the only ones going through it. Verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look at the, the subject tonight, that God strengthens the humble. That your spiritual walk is directly related to your humility, to your submission to those in authority over you, to this church, but ultimately to God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that above all, you'd be lifted up and glorified tonight. I believe I've met with you. I pray your spirit would show up and that we would uh, learn to see how how you will exalt humility, that your working is so often the opposite of what this world thinks and says and does. I pray that we'd see that tonight, and I pray that you'd work mightily. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. My intention <coughs> going through uh, the kind of breaking up this passage the way I did was really to hit verse 5 as a respect your elders type passage. And that's, I mean, that's what it is. There, there's an amount of that there. But we have to remember there's a context to all of this. And that verse 5 is tied in with all basically everything else that comes behind it. So we could say this passage is in the context of the elder and the younger, okay? Just like the elder have a responsibility to lead, the younger have a responsibility to submit to that leadership. But right after he says that in verse 5, the very next phrase is, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Now wait a second. You might think, I thought this was going to be a respect your elders type of passage here. But the point of this passage is not simply to get the younger to respect the elder, but to show us how God responds to our submission or lack thereof. Uh, Let me put it this way. I would not consider myself to be one of the elders of this church. Uh, There are plenty of folks here who remember when I was running around in the parking lot after the services. Uh, There are some who remember that, you know, my son, he's four years old, and you see him as soon as the service is over, he is making a beeline out there where he can play, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get toys out of their backpacks or whatever. You know, when I was a kid, the popular thing, especially during the summer, was we, I mean, as soon as the service was over, uh, we'd be outside and... Uh, we'd either be over at the swings swinging, there'd be 15, 20, you know, kids and up into the teenagers and maybe even some of the young adults would come out there. And then a few of my friends and I, one of our favorite things to do, if you remember, some of you may remember all the cedar bushes that used to be along the side of the building out here, there were perfect tunnels behind those cedar bushes. And we'd get out of the service and we'd hit there and we'd just, we'd just go in all the, in behind all the bushes along here and around the side of the building and back and all that kind of stuff. And there's people in here who would remember me when I was that age doing those kinds of things. 
those who taught me in Sunday school are here. I think of the wisdoms who've been teaching uh, that class for something like 40 years now, who were my juniors Sunday school teachers when I was fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Uh, I can think many can remember Mrs. Elliott teaching beginners for many years. And I would not consider myself to be a part of that group, if you will. Uh, I am not of that mature group age-wise, and probably some would say not in other ways as well. However, I do have a position in this church. Along with that position comes some amount of authority and leadership. Now, I have no business throwing my weight around, and I try... I have always tried not to do this, and I don't, I'm not going to expect everyone else in the church to do my bidding or anything like that. When I walk into this meeting or the situation that I'm in control here, none of those kinds of things. But, it, but as a staff member, there should be a, an amount of respect shown, at least to the position I hold. And there are those who are elders in this church, those who are of the spiritually mature, who have from time to time even said, hey, Tim, and, and almost immediately, I, I, mean, I mean Brother Tim. And there's that amount of, of respect by calling me Brother Tim. Now, I have never and will never take offense to that. If somebody says, hey, Tim, I, I mean Brother Tim or something like that, if anyone can call me by my first name, it's those who have that maturity. Uh, those who I looked up to for authority when I was younger and those kinds of things. But those are also the ones most likely to catch it and to apologize and to not mean to be disrespectful by it or anything like that. It's the younger ones who are most likely to ignore that respect. I've had 18, 19-year-olds, you know, it's happened once or twice maybe, say, hey, Tim, and then go on about their day as if that's expected. I had one time I had to say, it's Brother Tim. Oh, oh, sorry about that. And the, the thought behind their, in their mind is, well, you know, I'm, I've graduated high school now and we're peers. Well, I don't know that we could say we're peers necessarily. Um, but at the same time, I, being in my position, am not going to go around uh, 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 looking down on or, or you know, belittling those who have graduated high school and those kinds of things. Uh, I am going to treat them with some more respect. I mean... Uh, some of those, the, the younger guys in our church uh, that I don't, you know, like Brother Bradley and Brother Colton and others, that I don't treat them like they're in high school anymore because they're not in high school. They are some of the young adults in this church. But I also, being in the position I'm in, am not going around calling all the other adults in the church by their first names either. It's Brother So-and-so or Sister So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. Why? Because we are subject one to another. <laughs> submission to authority, submission to spiritual maturity is directly tied to humility. As a community of saints, we are to show some humility to each other. It's not about getting my way. It's not about keeping the hierarchy in the right order. And we're going to have to keep this rigid uh, chain of command and all of that. No, it's about humility. 
Now, when you are not showing proper respect to the rest of the church body, when you refuse to be subject to your church family, you're showing your lack of humility. Peter puts it this way. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. It's actually the same word construction we found back in chapter 1 where he talks about girding up the loins of your mind. You remember that? Uh, I mean, I don't want to go back to chapter 1. I've already referenced it multiple times tonight. Uh, And we're probably going to see a lot more of that over, over the course of the evening. But the sense behind this term is one of urgency. It's a call to immediate action. In other words, he's saying take some initiative to be humble. Well, how does that look? You know, I hear it said all too often today that respect is earned. It seems to be the norm for parents to teach their children that others should earn your respect. And if they don't earn it, they don't deserve it. But I would submit that that is not scriptural. The onus is not on others to earn your respect. That's putting you in a position of pride. It is on you to clothe yourself with humility. Well, why would that be the case? That doesn't make sense in our carnal minds. Shouldn't others have to earn my respect? Well, have you earned God's respect yet? The answer to that question is no, if you're not sure. You haven't and can't do anything to earn God's respect. And yet... He humbled himself for you. His humility led to his death on the cross. Uh, We've heard it preached before from Philippians chapter 2, how that Christ was so humble that he died for us. And because Christ's sacrifice is the ultimate lesson in humility, God has chosen that the humble are the ones who will receive His grace. Now look at the end of verse 5. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. I have news for you. Whether you think you're prideful or not, if you won't subject yourself to authority over you, if you won't subject yourself to your church family and you won't submit to the authority of the leadership of this church, you're not being humble. And do you know what the absence of humility is? Pride. I mean, we could go into that uh, and search the scriptures for how uh, God views pride. But the lack of humility, any lack of humility, it's not a vacuum, it's pride. It doesn't have to be characterized as hubris to be called pride. It doesn't have to be history book worthy to be considered pride. I'd submit that from what the scriptures say about pride, even what we many times think of as humility is really just pride in disguise. And God actively resists the proud. I think if we're honest, every one of us has at some point in our lives felt that resistance. It's not just that things aren't going my way. It's not just that everything tends to fall apart, but it really feels like something is actively resisting my efforts here. That everything I try to do, it's like someone is pushing back and pushing back. And that's because that's exactly what God is doing. 
You want grace? Humble yourself. You don't get to walk into God's throne room and casually shoot the breeze. You aren't deserving of His grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You aren't entitled to it. In fact, God has some prerequisites for who receives His grace. Now, everyone can receive God's grace. Everyone in the world can be, or can be given grace by God. And you might say, well, God talks about His love and His grace is unconditional because it's not based on you. But at the same time, God expects some humility. God expects you to recognize that you are not worthy of His grace. This world is obsessed with exalting themselves. I already mentioned it's been eye-opening as we've gone through Genesis with the teens on Sunday morning. From Cain on, the human race has been obsessed with their own name, their own legacy. I mean, if we go back to Genesis chapter 4, we'll see how that Cain refused. Not once did he acknowledge his sin before God. No, no, no. All he did was give excuse after excuse. God even warned Cain before he did it. And he still ended up murdering his brother. And not once in the confrontation that comes after that does Cain actually acknowledge that he murdered his brother. All he has to say is, this punishment is greater than I can bear. All he has to do is whine about this punishment. Unlike Adam and Eve, who acknowledged their sin, though it took some convincing, uh, they were, had to be confronted by God, but they ended up acknowledging, well, yeah, I did eat, I sinned, I've done wrong, and they got right with God and they moved on from it. From it. Cain refused. All he cared about was his punishment. And if you read on the end of that chapter, Cain ends up leaving uh, from the rest of the, the world, if you will. He, he leaves his family and he goes off with his wife and starts their own city. And he builds a name, a legacy. And really that characterizes that ungodly seed through Cain. That they were building a legacy and they were continuing on in life in their sin. They refused to get right with God. I mean, it talks about the great accomplishments they achieved with uh, 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 J-Ball and Jubal and Tubal Cain, with uh, uh, brass and iron and music and all of that kind of stuff. They built a mighty civilization. And in the end, God destroyed it all. And then we get to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And man was doing the same thing. We're going to build us a name, make a name for ourselves and build a tower to heaven. And I always thought that was odd that they would build this, want to build this tower to heaven and, and why God would be upset with that because God knew that they would get so high before they couldn't go any higher. I mean, they wouldn't even get even close to out of the atmosphere before they couldn't do any more. I mean, uh, the breathable atmosphere around the earth that without help is about 19 to 20,000 feet. Well, the actual atmosphere goes out to like 300,000 feet. 
they wouldn't even come close to the end of the atmosphere before they would start dying from asphyxiation. Why would God be upset with that? I mean, they're going to fail anyways. But God was upset with their pride, their hubris, their desiring to make a name apart from God, which was what they were created for, to make a name with God, to worship God. And down through the ages, man has done the same thing over and over again. You could read ancient writings of kings, how they wrote about themselves, uh, mighty hunters, and, and every, every king seems like in antiquity thinks that they were the richest king ever to live and all this kind of stuff. They wanted a legacy, they wanted a name. And yet every time, they pass off into history. In many cases, especially in Cain's case, we know little to nothing of what that civilization was like before the flood. Because they continued on in pride and God exalts humility. God's process is the opposite from what man often does. You want to be exalted before God? Then humble yourself. I love it down there in verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Under the mighty hand of God. True might, true power is only found in God. He is the one that can exalt you. He is the one that can lift you up. But he will only do that for those who truly humble themselves under his might. Now, we're going to look at verse 7 real quick. It says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. But I want you to notice that verse 7 is a continuation of verse 6. There's not a period there. <coughs> it's, <coughs> it's easy to kind of disconnect these two verses. It's, it seems like they're just kind of separate. Maybe a new paragraph is starting or something here, but it's not. It's the same thought. Okay, so think about this for a minute. What does humbling yourself under God's mighty hand have to do with casting your care upon Him? Well, that is the means to obtain humility. One of the great barriers in putting others uh, in front of yourself, one of the great barriers to, to humbling yourself before God is the question, who then will care for me? If I am to concern myself with putting others first, or as he's talking about in verses 5 and 6, subjecting myself to my church family, to submitting to the authority of the church and the elders in the church and all of that, if I'm going to submit under that, and ultimately if I'm going to humble myself, submit under the mighty hand of God, that's a powerful statement right there, if I'm going to do all that, then who is going to take care of me? Well, verse 7 is the answer. God will care for your needs. You can willingly place yourself under God's authority because He will care for you. Now, if you remember early on, earlier on in 1 Peter, we talked about, in fact, I think it's chapter 4, we talked about, and really we've seen throughout the book, that we as followers of Christ can rejoice even in suffering and persecution. 
that those who claim the name of Christ don't have to, although this seems so counterintuitive, and you think, I mean, if you really think about the, the terrible persecution that they were going through, that they could rejoice in that, that someone could be standing in the middle of the Colosseum with lions bearing down on them, and they could, in fact, it was expected that they could still rejoice in that. The story of to- is told of two men in England in the 1500s who were accused of translating the Bible into English. They were put at the stake. And one man said to the other, Be of good cheer and play the man. We shall this day light such a fire in England as I trust shall never be put out. Be of good cheer. And the, the testimony is that as the flames licked up, that these two men were singing praises to God. They could do that. They could rejoice in the middle of that because they had submitted themselves under the mighty hand of God. We've seen throughout 1 Peter that God is not promised to deliver us from all suffering and pain here on this wor- in this earth. But He has promised to vindicate those who follow Him. That those who trust in God will one day stand before Him when He reveals Himself to this world. All of those who put their faith in Him will be vindicated. Our natural state is to care for ourselves. I have to watch my back because no one else will watch it for me. But that's not how God works. His might is such that He will care for those who submit themselves to Him. I wish I could come up with the right words to really convey the importance of these two verses here. I mean, this is, there's so much here. It's so powerful, though it may seem like a daunting prospect to put your life completely into the hands of someone else. That someone else is the only one mighty enough to handle your life in its entirety. It goes against our very nature to not be in control. But if we give control of our lives over to God, He will never let us down. Quite the opposite of true is true. Those who pride or those who through pride retain ownership and control of their lives will only face resistance from God. But those who through humility give complete control to God. They will be raised up in His power and in His time. What then will my life look like if I refuse to submit to God? Well, look at verse 8. He says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. If you refuse to humble yourself under God's mighty hand, then your adversary will have the mastery over you. The same humility that submits you under the mighty hand of God is the only true defense against the power of Satan. This entire epistle has had that subtext of persecution and suffering. The devil in this verse uh, is, is a, a representation, if you will. I mean, it's certainly talking about the devil himself, but we can almost see it like a representation of all the enemies of the Christian. 
Because all of those who are against Christ, all of those who, who mock and rail on them like he talked about in chapter 4, they are doing that through the power of Satan, through the devil as a roaring lion. But the way to defeat the enemy of the Christian is not to fight against human powers. It is to do good, to live peaceably, to return blessing instead of cursing, to humble yourself before God. That's how sin and Satan can be resisted. Just like God will resist those who refuse to humble themselves before Him, He will empower you to resist the devil through humility. And going right back to the question of verses 6 and 7, who will care for me? Well, you're not alone. You are part of a brotherhood of faith. There are many more who have humbled themselves before God. They have faced the same and probably worse persecution. They have faced the same anxieties and concerns. And God hasn't let them down. You can resist the working of the devil in your life because God has already proven himself time and time again. Those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand will be strengthened, established, vindicated. In chapter 1, we saw that our earthly trials merely serve to vindicate our future hope. Once again, Peter circles back to that truth. We aren't exempt from suffering. Suffering is sure. Those who follow God will certainly face it, but that suffering is really just proof that God will come through for His children. All loss in this life will be made right, and that for eternity. You cannot let the temporal cares and trials of this world distract you from eternity. Yes, suffering is hard. Yes, persecution is difficult. We can't minimize that. Yes, wicked people may hurt or even kill you for following Christ. But they have no power over eternity. God will make all things right in His time. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strengthen, settle you. When Christ conquered death and re-entered heaven victorious, like we saw in chapter 3, He claimed dominion over the earth and the heavens to be rightfully His. Well, it doesn't feel like that right now. It may not feel like that in the middle of persecution. It may not feel like that in the middle of suffering. But don't let temporary feelings distract you from eternity. So Peter finishes out this letter in, in kind of the normal way. But I want to see there in verse 12, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. One of the things that should stand out to us in this letter is how much Peter has said in such a short amount of time. He's written to them moral exhortations such as we find in chapters 2 and 3. He's written to them doctrinal teaching like we would find there in chapters 4 and 5. And his last exhortation to them is to stand in the truth of God's grace. And the only way to do that is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That is the truth Peter's talking about. God's word is the standard of truth by which we are to live our lives. Peter himself has testified of that. 
So stand. Stand humbly under God's authority. Stand firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in suffering. You can respond to hard situations with grace. You can submit yourself to one another in this church. You can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The beginning of the Christian life is to humble yourself before God. You will always face resistance. You will always uh, be standing in the background and holding back and you'll never really see God work in your life like He could, like He wants to, short of humbling yourself under His mighty hand. And as daunting as that may be, He will care for you far greater than you could ever care for yourself. Let's pray. Lord, thank